You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh, Lord, um, I pray that you would just meet us in this room today, um, that uh, what you uh, deem important that comes out of my mouth would stick in the hearts of those in this room today, and whatever I say that's garbage, just let it fly out the window. Um, and above all, that you would, uh, your name would just be glorified here today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, I'm going to begin by reading this story of our girl Hagar today, which by the way, do y'all pronounce it Hagar? I feel like I've heard Heidi Kenner is like, you know, the mountaintop and she says it's something funny, but I'm going with Hagar. Hagar, because I'm from the South. Um, so y'all just follow along with me up on the screen. This is from Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, uh, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. A few verses later, scripture says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, the word of the Lord. So when Carolyn Langford asked me to do this Sunday school class, she specified that she wanted me to re-offer a talk I gave about Hagar to the women's ministry uh, at the Advent several years ago. Some of you were probably in that room. Um, so that's a bit of what I'm going to give y'all uh, today, plus some rejigging, because of course, the subject matter being seen by God, irreversibly marked and kept by his steadfast love means something more meaningful to, uh, to me today than it did even then. Namely, I'm still learning, as we all are. The story of Hagar, like all of Scripture, has something to teach us in the here and now. And this is the bit uh, that has really struck my heart anew. A question. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? It's remarkable because he names her. He knows her. And it's peculiar because these questions are being asked by the only one who, of course, already knows the answers. So we'll seek to unpack this more over the course of this lesson. It's been a tough year and a half, y'all. 
It seems like all of us have experienced some kind of personal loss and collective trauma. We've lost loved ones. We've lost a job. Our church body has gone through some serious upheaval. The emotional and political state of our country is dangerously electric. And parenting has uh, taken some prayer and endurance before, but now has become a test of our natures rivaling Lord of the Flies. Where have we come from and where on earth are we going? On a personal level, I was one of the first 3,000 Americans to contract COVID-19. Go me. Um, several weeks later, my family up and moved across the country less than a month after the world shut down last March. We sold a house. We bought a house. My kids started at yet another new school wearing face masks, no less this time. We lost one beloved pet and gained three new pets, including a turtle and two puppies. We've canceled vacations, we've rescheduled vacation, and we have worried and worried and worried. None of this is abnormally horrendous, right? This is just life. Um, and in particular, life in 2020 and 2021 and maybe 2022, and I don't know. Um, I look around me now as we enter this, you know, fourth wave, and it seems kind of like we're all just plugging our ears and praying that everything we've gone through is over or at least in its final chapter. Um, and I don't know about you, but in the cells of my skin, COVID or no COVID, things are just not yet quite right. What is this back to normal we all keep talking about? Was normal really ever normal? In the second half of 2021, I don't really know who I am anymore. Not in the way I thought I did before. You know, am I climbing David Brooks's noble second mountain or am I just floundering around like a lost child in a shopping mall? The horizon, both personally and globally, feels utterly cattywampus. And I don't know about y'all, but I have this tiny but nagging dread that continues to sit sort of like a right in this under the ribcage place. We are still, as ever, in the thick and thorny brambles of wilderness, so very, very east of Eden. Don't you feel it? Here's what God says to Hagar as he meets her in her own wilderness. Where have you come from and where are you going? This question is so expansive in the sense that the God of the universe knows exactly where his daughter has come from and also where she's going. So let's look at the backstory again, right? Hagar is an Egyptian slave to Sarai, wife of Abram. Sarai had grown impatient waiting on the child the Lord had promised her. So she sends Abram to marry and sleep with Hagar. We can also just call this rape. And once Hagar realizes she has conceived, she's ticked, as one would be. Well, then Sarai becomes ticked that Hagar is ticked, and she blames Abram, who gives her permission to do whatever she needs to do to keep Hagar in line. All we know from the biblical account is that Sarai mistreated Hagar. I can't surmise exactly what that mistreatment entailed, but it turned her horizon cattywampus. She was pinned into a corner looking to a into a future that was no future at all. So she said, I'm done, and she fled. This is where we come to our meet-cute between the pagan, pregnant, Egyptian slave girl and the angel of the Lord. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? 
It's a question that mimics a similar one from Genesis 3, if y'all will remember. Adam is naked, ashamed, and hiding from the Lord. And God says, rhetorically, of course, where are you? In both instances, the Lord's eventual, eventual response is not judgment and damnation, but friendship, mercy, grace, and the hope and promise of a better story. So in this awful wilderness that we're all in of the now but the not yet, where sickness and strife abound, we think we're better, we're not better, it's all a mess. Um, this is our same promise of a better story. So as Hagar sits next to a well of all things, the Lord in naming her Hagar, slave of Sarai, is telling her, I know you, I have known you, and I see you. I know where you've been and I know where you're going and I have a plan for your life. He tells her she's pregnant, which of course is one of the reasons she fled to begin with. And he says, I will increase your descendants so much they will be too numerous to count. And he tells her about her future son. And then he tells her to go back to Sarai, which is crazy. Where have you come from and where are you going? So from my first world American vantage point, I want the answers to these questions to have movement, you know, like a comforting, impressive trajectory. Like I came from here and I'm going here. But in Hagar's case, she came from an abusive situation as a slave. And that is exactly where she is to return to. Ugh, I mean, it's, it's all wrong with, with me. I mean, I just want the fairy tale ending, right? But, but God's like, no, you got to go back. And yet something about this encounter with God makes Hagar feel seen, known, and loved such that she does not protest. In fact, it's quite the opposite, right? She's willing and even emboldened to go back and endure the awful torment, the mistreatment of her prior circumstances. Her response to this counter is magnanimous. I have now seen the one who sees me. So what we observe here is an incredible strength, power, and fortitude in the seemingly insignificant experience of being seen and known. So let's unpack that. Longing to be seen for everything we are exactly as we are to be fully and completely known. These are universal longings, right? I mean, they're sort of behind almost everything we do in our lives. And it's a theme I've often identified as a need that isn't being met in my own life. And I'm sure every single one of y'all can relate, right? This deep, private, aching sense of loneliness, of feeling unknown or even unknowable. I mean, I get the obvious answer that although I feel translucent, God sees me and he knows me. And that's all that really matters, like done and done. But here's what I have to confess. I'm 37 years old and still grappling with the idea of what it truly means to be seen and known by this God who made me, who always knew there would be a Charlotte Getz in the world, and even that she'd be standing before you today. This is where God began to do his work on me several years ago as I first started to consider this story of Hagar. In a wild panic, as I couldn't make heads or tails of what it really meant to be seen, the Holy Spirit seemed to urge me to close my computer, to go get on a hot bath, which is my thinking place, to forget about Hagar for a minute and what it means to be seen by God, and instead to think about what it means to be loved by God. 
So two things dawned on me in that moment. First, maybe being seen by God has something to do with being loved by God. And second, if I didn't know what it truly meant to be seen by God, then I probably didn't know what it truly meant to be loved by God, which is kind of a scary thought, right? It's like the whole basis of our thing here. Um, But maybe some of you can track with me. Maybe you weren't feeling seen or loved because of the isolation that comes with Mm -hmm. age, divorce, parenting young children, or if you're like me, layers of chronic illness. Maybe Mm -hmm. you have no idea who you are. Maybe you've isolated yourself by some truly awful behavior. Maybe you feel isolated in your marriage, or perhaps you're on the other end of that spectrum in the painful solitude of singledom. Maybe you've been trying to have a baby for years or feel deserted by God, plain and simple. Maybe you've suffered unthinkable loss. And we all, of course, have experienced grueling depths of loneliness and isolation as a result of this pandemic. So whether physically or emotionally, whether surrounded by walls of faces or stuck between the four walls of your own bedroom. In any scenario, we have all known moments or seasons when we feel so alone and unseen that our skin physically hurts for lack of any meaningful connection or affirmation. Most of us in this room would probably eagerly acknowledge that God loves his people. But maybe, like me, your experience of God's love for you kind of stops there with just a basic acceptance that it must be true. From my high horse, I will tell you that of course I know God loves me. But probe any deeper, and the size and shape of that love is a little bit like vapor. Colorless, untouchable, unseeable. More of a sky-high concept than a truth I can hold tight to or look in the eye. Like Hagar, I'm stuck somewhere between Sarai and that well, And as the late Mary Oliver says in one of her poems, I have not forgotten the way, but a little the way to the way. Side note, I'm going to quote Mary Oliver a bunch because it's Mary Oliver. Um, I know God loves me, but I so often lose touch with the width, the depth, the height, the breadth, the shape and feel of that love. So I'm going to try to put skin on this faraway idea of God's intimate love for you and me. If being loved and being seen have this sort of symbiotic thing going on, then where exactly is the way to the way? Um, Let's start down this murky path like a child would and look at the dictionary definition of the word love. Stay with me here. So as you look at the screen and we begin to think about these descriptions more specifically in terms of God's love for us, a few things stand out to me that I put up in bold and it's kind of hard to tell in there, but do give it, give it your best shot. So love by its dictionary definition seems to be personal and pointed, not broad and spread out in general. It is specific. It has an object. Love is physical, tangible, certain. Like the angel of the Lord and Hagar, it's undeniably there and with us. It is warm, unwavering, selfless. It has gestures. It makes gestures. It is active, held captive, always working, and it delights. So if biblically speaking, being seen has something to do with being loved, then as a next step, 
I conducted a word search on Bible Gateway for the word love, right? Let's see what the Bible says about love. And y'all, the results of this were, were I, I really did this just as like, all right, let's like find some verses. But here's what I discovered. <laughs> it's cooler than that. One of the most striking, this is one of the coolest discoveries I think I've ever accidentally sort of stumbled upon, which obviously it wasn't an accident and the Holy Spirit did it. Um, but in the Old Testament, where there is the word love as it pertains to God's love for his people, it is almost always, like 95% of the time, either preceded or followed by the word steadfast. The steadfastness of God's love is reiterated, confirmed over and over again throughout scripture. And it's the kind of thing where I'm like, why are we all talking about this? Like, this is weird. I mean, it's unique. It's, it's, it, I've just never heard it before. Maybe y'all have, but it's prolific. Again, I'm not a mathematician, obviously, but I'd estimate that literally over 90% of the time where the Old Testament scripture is describing God's love for us, it is accompanied by this word, steadfast. So Exodus 15, 13, you have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. Psalm 59, my God and his steadfast love will meet me. Psalm 103, he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And again, we're seeing evidence that the quality of God's love is physical, intimate, certain, undeniably there and with us. Right by these verses, which I think you see in yellow, God's love leads us, it meets us, it crowns us. These are actions, these are physical present things. It shows up as a cloud by day and a fire by night. It's not an obscure idea for us to just merely accept or know. It's active. It has arms and legs. It moves. So the dictionary defines steadfast like this, firmly fixed in place, not subject to change. Boom. Pretty clear. Not subject to change. Guys, if you think people are bad today, and we have a lot of examples of that right now. The doofuses throughout the Old Testament are some real question marks. <laughs> and yet God's love for them is not subject to change. And he says it to them over and over again. He keeps showing up and reminding this nasty group of bozos over and over how his love for them in particular is steadfast. Psalm 136 alone repeats this phrase a whopping 26 times. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. This is extremely good news. And I'm not calling my research meticulous by any means, but I think it is very telling that only once did I come across the term steadfast love as it pertains to the way humans are able to love. It's in the book of Judges where we read that they did not show steadfast love. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. <laughs> so we cannot rely on the love of other people to remain constant and sure and satisfying. We all know this. This is, this is just life. Ask Hagar. Human love is subject to change. It just is. We all know this. Human love is unreliable. And in a pandemic, even human presence is unreliable which is why I think it's hard for us to even wrap our heads around the nature of God's steadfast love, that there is nothing we can do or not do to make it waver. His love is fixed. It is fixed on you. It is fixed on me. When the Bible mentions human love, it is overwhelmingly in reference to our lovers, 
as in the earthly things we turn to in order to feel seen and loved. Money, friends, sex, beauty, vacations, internet blogging. <laughs> On my part. Um, God's people, since the dawn of time, have struggled to fully comprehend or accept the magnitude of what God really means when he says he knows us and he sees us and he loves us. Almost everything we strive to do in an ordinary day, in one way or another, is an effort to take on this physical, visible, knowable shape before others and even ourselves. Right? Think about that. We work our tails off at the office. We go on detoxes and exercise like 50-year-old Olympiads. We clean and tidy until our fingers are raw. We post endless filtered selfies on social media. We dress in a certain way. We share curated photos of our children and friend groups. I just did this. We had a week in Cape Cod. The pictures I posted are gorgeous. My kids fought like banshees. It looked great. Yes. Yeah. I keep meaning to do a follow-up being like, I lied. It was tough. Um, but all of these things we do, right? It's just, it's like headlights. We're saying, I matter. See me. And we do all this because deep inside all of us is Eve, right? Naked, ashamed, lost, grasping at anything with which to make herself look better than she is trying for what would be the first time, not the last time in history of mankind to earn her own love and approval. So much of our sin, if you think about it, has its roots here, right? And trying horizontally as opposed to vertically to fulfill this desire to be seen and loved and acknowledged. And holy cow, is it exhausting to keep up that hunt? Aren't you tired? I'm so tired. So let me give you something that speaks right into that. So God's love is particularly steadfast, is sprinkled hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament, right? We talked about that. Here's the really interesting thing. In the New Testament, God's steadfast love is mentioned once. And here it is. Second Thessalonians 3, 5 says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. That's it. In the whole New Testament. This blows my mind. It's as if scripture is saying that God's steadfast love has found its full completion and its final expression in Christ. God's countless promises in the Old Testament to be steadfast in his love, to remain fixed, are answered and finished once and for all in Jesus. What I love about this is it brings to mind that physicality of God's love yet again. His love isn't just a feeling or a concept or something we just generally know. It's embodied in a person who showed his love in humongous, countercultural, mysterious, nonsensical actions. Right? God's love expressed through Jesus healed the ill. It comforted the lonely. It washed feet. It made crazy people sane. It raised the dead. And it made the invisible, translucent, hated, outskirts sort of people, which is to say all of us, visible. It brought them right into the center of his loving fold. When I am sick at home, behind on deadlines, wondering when nobody is reading what I write or liking my hysterical Instagram posts, <laughs> when I'm missing my husband who works too much, I love you, um, 
and would do absolutely anything to escape to Tahiti for a week. What comforts me is not the notion of a loving God, but the truth of a physical, in the flesh person who loves me so much that he died so he could be with me forever. Steadfast, fixed, unchanging. These words have shape. They feel heavy, tangible, hearable, seeable. Like God showing up as an angel to Hagar at the well. God's is a love and a grace that we cannot outrun. So one of my favorite B-list celebrities on the scene right now is an actress named Busy Phillips. And I kind of hate that I love her. She's sort of nutty. She's entertaining. Um, But several years ago, anyway, she came out with a memoir. And the central theme of this memoir is her desire to be seen, which is really interesting coming from a famous person who is first and foremost visible. Um, And while this is not an endorsement for her books by any means, you know, in fact, don't read it. But uh, she (laughs) she tells a story in it that so encapsulates God's strange and magnificent, a particular love and mercy for his sinful people. Think about water. Um, Okay, so Busy was raised Catholic, and she talks about how she loved the church growing up. She says, I loved taking the body and blood of Christ. I loved listening to the priest give his sermon, trying always to make it relatable and modern, which is what I'm doing right now, I realize. Um, I loved putting dollars in the little wicker donation basket and passing it down the aisle. I loved lighting a tea candle at the little altar and saying a prayer for someone who needed it. But I had pretty much stopped going to church by the time I was in high school. It was hard to find the value in sitting there. I thought God had abandoned me in the back of an SUV. You see, when she was 14, Busy was raped by an older boy in the back of her car, back of his car. And a year or so after that unimaginable trauma, she discovered she had become pregnant by her high school boyfriend. The full details of the story are completely tragic, and unfortunately, Busy decided to go through with an abortion. When her boyfriend's parents, who were also devout Catholics, found out that she was going to abort the baby, they called her a murderer, said she was going to hell, and all sorts of other devastating things for a deeply broken and confused teenager to hear. Busy says, in my gut, I knew there was some truth to it. I knew it was a baby or rather that she would become a baby uh, if I didn't put an end to her. Somehow I also knew it was a girl. I could feel it. And of course this guilt and shame and torment carried on after her abortion as she watched another classmate who had gotten pregnant around the same time, also with a little girl, actually go through with her pregnancy. Busy says, I still cried regularly in bed at night Sure, not only that I had murdered a baby, but that I was also going to hell. How would God ever forgive me? How would my own father? How would I? Now, a few months after this, Busy was on a school trip in Rome and found herself smack dab in the middle of the Vatican. Cutting into the wonder of it all, someone nearby yelled, The Pope is here! Right then, a handful of meticulously providential things happened in a matter of seconds. So as Busy is trying to get closer to the Pope, she's swept into this feverish crowd. One person pulls her, another pushes, and suddenly, miraculously, she finds herself face to face with Pope John Paul II. And this is how she describes it. He smiled and laughed 
and then took my cheeks in his hands and said something softly in Italian, I guess, <laughs> a prayer for me. He made the sign of the cross on me and put his palm to my forehead and then nodded at me and turned and walked away back through the door where the Pope goes to do Pope stuff. I remember his eyes. They were soft. I remember that he really had love for me, truly. I remember I knew it was okay. She says, I've never told this story publicly. I haven't even told people I'm very close with. It almost feels sacrilegious for me to be typing these words now, giving this to the world. Imagining having to talk about this in an interview for a gossip magazine to sell my book, or seeing the headline, reducing what was the most incredible thing that has ever happened to me to clickbait. But I don't exist without this story, and the story doesn't exist without this ending. It doesn't work for me without getting the absolution I needed, and from the only person in the world who could give it to me, the Pope in Rome. When we got back to the hotel, I called my parents and woke them up. It was June 14th, 1995 in Rome, June 13th in Arizona. It was my due date. Woof. That, I, that gives me chills. That is physical, tangible, smiling, nodding, cheeks pinching, stare you in the face, steadfast love in the midst of unimaginable guilt and shame and suffering. It is evidence of a God who loves us particularly, who will bring us face to face with the Pope in Rome to remind us of that love. But the good news for Busy and for all of us is that the Pope isn't really the final word on our absolution. Jesus is. Romans 5 reminds us God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I do not need the Pope to prove this to be true. Like Mary Oliver, I need only to stand wherever I am to be blessed. This hits home for me in a bone and marrow and sinew kind of way. This absolute need we all have to be seen right in the ugliest parts of our messes. A notion that is so deep, so requisite, that like the story of Hagar suggests, just to be known and seen in our circumstances might even supersede the circumstances themselves. Remember, all God does with Hagar is to physically come before her and tell her that he knows her, that he knows what will become of her and her unborn child. And with that, all of Hagar's plans are completely undone. She doesn't even put up a fight when God tells her to go back to Sarai, whom God also loved, by the way. No, overcome and worshipful, she gushes, you are the God who sees me. Or like the other woman at the well from John 4, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Friends, like Busy, like Hagar, like John's woman at the well, God sees you and knows every raw and gritty and shameful and uncompromising detail of your sin, everyday suffering and questionable decisions. And because of Jesus, his steadfast love remains ever fixed on the object of his desire, you. Because of Jesus, God sees and loves us at every angle. But without grasping the full weight and shape of that love, we are left to look for it elsewhere, right? That horizontal love, 
For me, that's usually Instagram or home decor or praise for my writing or an insane overabundance of anti-aging facial products. <laughs> settling, settling for God's love is just a distant concept. It leaves me feeling aggression towards my family, resentment towards my life. It leaves me feeling helpless as the world is falling apart me in this dumb fourth wave. And then I find myself daydreaming about another life altogether, possibly, probably in Italy, uh, where I am seen and known and loved in a way that transcends anything I could ever imagine, most likely by a tall, dark man with an exotic accent. But friends, you can put down that fight. None of these things is steadfast. You can stand at the well that never runs dry and bathe in the living water of God's steadfast love for you through Jesus, because you are, I am, seen and known and loved in a way that really does transcend anything you could even imagine. So coming face to face anew with this reality reminds me a lot of those videos you see of babies who've just received hearing aids or cochlear implants. Um, and I showed this video the last time I gave this talk, because, but it's just too good. Um, watching this and envisioning yourself as this child who's hearing for the first time, um, it's as if once I had not heard, and now I had heard. And this is exactly how I imagine Hagar stood, a wonder, seen and known before the angel of the Lord. So with that in mind, let's check this out. So for me, I so often lose my way to the way. And like Hagar, I haven't just found a voice, but a warm, physical, present, in the flesh person with a scent and a breath and a heartbeat. Someone like a mother embracing, speaking words over me. I love you. Just like the mother in this video. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have seen you and known you from the beginning. This is where you've come from. This is where you're going. If God's love is as physical and tangible as the Bible says it is, a voice, a pillar, an embrace, a sacrifice, we can expect to experience that love all around us here and now. Psalm 119.64 says, The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. And because God loves each of us particularly, we can expect to experience that love in ways that are particular to us. For me, day to day, I notice God loving me in ordinary details. This particular scent in the air that reminds me of where I grew up visiting in Florida. The view out my kitchen window that looks a little bit like Narnia. Or the wind, which has always felt in some way like God's physical presence with me. 
a Saturday morning drinking coffee in bed, listening to my kids giggle in the other room because the husband is tending to them and not me. (laughs) A song that plays on shuffle at just the right moment. My bare feet on the cold stone of the back patio as the world is just beginning to wake up. A warm bath. And of course, the many intricate and intimate ways he has shown up in my greatest despair, my most dizzying confusion, my most unbearable isolation. He shows up to me in shows like Gilmore Girls or Downton Abbey, also murder shows, but he's not there as much, I think, (laughs) to remind me that, yes, the world is dark and sad and broken, but it is also filled with color and humor and heart and a lightness divine that is absolutely all around us, even especially in the wilderness places. We have a God who loves us so much that he stops us in the willy-nilly tracks of our desert ramblings like Hagar or Busy Phillips or me. And he says things like, I am the God who sees you in your suffering, in your illness, in your loneliness, in your insecurity, in your grief, in your shame, in your unbelief. You may not know who you are anymore, but I know who you are. And I have a plan for your life. And this is what I've been learning. God does not just love me like an uncle, as in I have to love her because she's my sister's kid. No, he loves me with an everlasting, enduring, never stopping, never giving up, always there, intimate, desperate kind of love. It is like Mary Oliver has said, like fires for the cold, ropes let down to the lost, something as necessary as bread in the pockets of the hungry. This love, by its very definition, let's go over it one last time, is personal and pointed, not broad and spread out in general. It is specific. It has an object. It is physical, tangible, certain, undeniably there and with you. It is warm and unwavering and selfless. It has gestures. It makes gestures. It is active, held captive, always working, It delights, and it is ever fixed on you. Like Psalm 119 says, God's love comes to us, it comforts us, and it gives us life. And all of this is proved true now and forever in one single in-the-flesh person, King Jesus the Steadfast, who poured out his love for you and for me on a cross. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Lord, um, show yourself to us, your physical presence, tangibly throughout our days in unexpected places and unexpected ways that we would learn every day more and more your particular love for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.